Good morning. A few weeks ago, the elders called some of us together to talk about this season of the life of the church that we're now in, and there were two uh, complementary elements. One was the Holy Spirit, the other was the holiness of God. And you can see there's obviously going to be an overlap between the two. We've had David Lyon and Jeff Grice talking mainly on the Holy Spirit. My focus to begin with is the holiness of God, but inevitably I'll be talking about the Holy Spirit as well. So you won't be surprised by that. In Leviticus 11.45, God says to his people, be holy because I am holy. And those same words are quoted by Peter, 1 Peter 1.16, exactly the same words, be holy because I am holy. Now, I don't know about you, but the concept of holiness when I was a lad put me off, really did put me off. Um, I mean, I read what some people say about holiness. Mother Teresa says, holiness, or said, holiness consists of doing the will of God with a smile. And I think, hmm. David Watson said, there's nothing negative or killjoy about holiness. But that really wasn't my experience as a lad growing up. My experience in the church circles that I was in as a boy, holiness was austere, legalistic, miserable, lacking color, lacking fun, lacking vitality. It was don't do this and don't do that, and then you'll be holy. Everything was just black and white and uh, monochrome. And of course, when you mix black and white, you get gray, gray, gray. Now, the Pharisees in the time of Jesus, they saw everything in black and white terms, didn't they? They were austere. They were legalistic. They were miserable. Um, and they thought they were being holy by observing the minute details of all the hundreds of rules that had been added down the generations to the original life-giving law of God. So when this fellow from up north, Nazareth, fellow called Jesus, arrived on the scene, the Pharisees quickly decided he put, couldn't possibly be the Messiah. He may have healed a few people, yeah, fine, but he associated with the scum of society. He, he didn't condemn a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. He went to have a meal with a double-dealing tax collector. He couldn't possibly be Messiah. And so they constantly tried to trip him up and catch him out. But they failed miserably, because they were a miserable, miserable bunch anyway. Their basic problem was they couldn't recognize holiness personified, which is what Jesus was. Holiness going to parties, holiness turning water into wine, they would rather it have been the other way around. Holiness welcoming sinners into his company. Holiness touching lepers. This didn't match up for them at all. Now what we know is that Jesus, he was the Messiah. He went 
amongst these groups without ever compromising his nature or his calling. He was with them, he was amongst them, but he was never part of them. He stood out from the crowd. He maintained a clarity of character and behavior that marked him out as different. And to be holy means to be different, means to be separate from the rest of society. If you want to see what holiness looks like, take a good look at Jesus. He is holiness personified. The Old Testament prophets looked through the telescope of the generations, and down there they saw this amazing person emerging, this one who was Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees and even the Romans tried to put Jesus under a microscope, and they examined him, the microscope of their own cultural prejudices, and came to their own conclusions. But the New Testament writers, the Gospel writers, and Paul, and uh, Peter, and James, and so on, they combined to create something like a hall of mirrors around this amazing person called Jesus, and they presented that to us so that we get a full picture. And what did they all see? They saw holiness personified. Now, one of those writers, Peter, who we know was very, very close to Jesus, he wrote this to Christians. He wrote this to you, and he wrote it to me and to us corporately. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. How does it feel to be part of a holy nation? I wonder if we feel comfortable being labeled holy. We probably, well, I'm sure we do view God as holy, and then we think, well, by comparison, I, I'm anything but holy. And yet, Paul, writing to the Colossian church, right at the beginning of his letter, he addresses the believers as holy and faithful. And when he writes to Titus about the character requirements for an elder, Paul says he must be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. It's quite demanding, isn't it? Being an elder, pray for the elders. That's Titus 1 verse 8. So yes, we probably feel a bit uncomfortable at the thought of being described as holy, either individually or corporately. We read Isaiah chapter 6, that lovely vision that he had of God in the temple, or, or again in the book of Revelation. Some wonderful pictures there, and it's the angels and all the company of heaven worshiping God and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is the one who is majestic in holiness. And we look at ourselves and we think, I don't really measure up to that. And yet, here's a truth to get your head round. If you are truly born again, if you are genuinely a follower, a disciple of Jesus, you have living inside you a holy person. Just let that sink in for a moment. We'll come back to it.
As we read the Old Testament, we see the children of Israel, for all their faults, they were designated as a holy nation. They were the people chosen by God to be his prototype, to, to work out and to fulfill his purposes for this world. And even though they kept missing the mark and being disobedient, they were his people. They were the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were definitely uh, separate from the Egyptians when they were in slavery. And they were intended to be separate from the tribes of Canaan when they came into the promised land. There were problems there. They wanted to absorb some of the culture of the Moabites and the Edomites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all the otherites. But they were intended to be separate, consecrated, purified, holy. To be an Israelite was to have holy stamped on your passport. All you required to qualify was to be a biological descendant of Abraham and you were in. You were part of a holy nation. And God had quite a job on his hands, didn't he? To make them into what he said they were. And he used uh, the patriarchs, he used the judges, he used the prophets, some of the kings, in the process of producing what was intended to be a genuinely, recognizably holy people. Ultimately, that part of the project failed because they weren't able to live up to that level. So God came to earth in the person of the one who lived a thoroughly human and thoroughly ho holy life, and that was Jesus. And God said, that's what I'm after. Well, the actual words he used were, that's, this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. Why was he well pleased? Because he saw holiness personified in the person of Jesus. And he demonstrated that it was possible to be human and to be holy. And then from those who were the followers of Jesus, God formed another body of people, and he called them holy. Not this time a biological or ethnic uh, grouping, but a spiritual entity. We call it the church. Fortunately, God did not just say, that's what I'm after, now try your hardest to live like Jesus. That would have been the highway to frustration, wouldn't it? We know that from personal experience. Trying hard to be like Jesus is hopeless. It, it's a, it's a no-win situation. I remember <laughs> when I was a lad, I, I, I never used to make New Year resolutions, but one year, I, I must have been perhaps 9 or 10 or 11, I said to my mum and dad on January the 1st, this year I'm going to be good. <laughs> that was my resolution. It probably lasted till breakfast time on January the 1st. The intention was there, but I didn't have the capability. But God has provided the means by which, in reality, we can be a holy people, a holy nation. And the means is the Holy Spirit who is living inside you and living inside me. Interesting, the English word holy comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, halig, which in turn comes all the way back from Germanic, 
over the centuries. Halig means whole or complete. So that really is the English essence of holiness, wholeness, completeness. And if you think about God, the Godhead is a whole made up of three persons, three people united as one in purpose, although their roles, their functions were uh, a little bit different. But it's important that we recognize the unity, the wholeness, the completeness when we think about the holiness of God. The Father was incomplete without the Son and the Spirit. When Jesus was on this earth, he did not operate independently. He was constantly checking in with Father, and he was constantly guided and directed by the Spirit. And when Jesus went to be in glory with the Father, the Holy Spirit came, and again, he doesn't act independently of the Father and the Son. His focus is always to bring us to a place where we're giving glory to the Father and the Son. So there is a unity, there is a completeness about the Godhead. What about the church? What about us? Be holy, says God, because I am holy. Well, in Ephesians 4, Paul says that the gifts which Jesus has given to the church to succeed, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, are to prepare God's people for works of service. The word used for prepare originally means mending nets, bringing broken nets into wholeness, completeness, so that the fish don't escape through the net. It also means bringing order out of chaos and bringing wholeness. So these ministry gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, are given to the church to make the bride of Christ, the church, whole and holy, because the two things mean the same. And then Paul goes on to spell it out. He says, so that, this is the purpose of it, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Wholeness in the church which will be increasingly in evidence as we respond to the promptings of the holy person who is in our lives. We respond in worship, we respond in service, we respond in outreach, in evangelism, we respond in giving, we respond in all kinds of ways of ministry. That's the church, the holy people of God. And my responsibility as part of that whole is to make sure that I'm not the missing piece in the jigsaw. Some of us enjoy doing jigsaws. Isn't it awful when you get to the end of one and there's one piece missing? I usually throw them in the bin when that happens. I don't pass them on to anybody else. That is incomplete. That is no good. Get rid of it. Well, fortunately, God doesn't say that about the church. But he is looking for wholeness amongst the people of God that the body functions as a whole entity. My body functions pretty well. I keep pretty fit. Um, 
the significant problem in my life is my toes. And you might say, well, toes are not very important. My toes are very important to me. Um, I'm standing here holding on to this because my toes don't function as they should and I am occasionally liable to lose my balance. Toes are very important. Feet are very important. We tend to think, oh, the head and the heart and the lungs, they're the really important things, but no, toes, fingers, all important. Joy's nodding away here. She's a nurse, she knows. Maureen's smiling, she knows. Yeah? So, don't be the toe that isn't working in the church. Um, Ali Roswell and I sing in a choir, the Southport Singers. It's very handy because they meet on these premises. Um, and May, May knows what it is to sing in a choir as well. Um, hers is much bigger than ours, but uh, even to be in a group of, say, 30, 35 people, it's a wonderful experience. Not just to sing in unison. That's good when people sing in unison. But to sing in four-part harmony is even better. You've got sopranos, altars, tenors, and basses, and they each do their bit, but the combined effort is just sublime. We were rehearsing the other night, and Nick, the choir master, who's a very perceptive man, a very good man, um, we sang through something, and he said, that was really good. He said, there was just one bit I just want to go back over, and he focused on the little bit, and he said, tenors and basses, just sing that line again. And we sang the line again. He said, right, you've got it now. There was one person who got one note wrong first time through. It could have been me. Could well have been me. We mustn't be the one who is singing out of tune for the whole to function as it should. Everything about God is complete, is holy, is perfect. His goodness, his justice, his righteousness, his mercy, his compassion, his faithfulness, his unfailing love. And in the church, there is the potential for holiness, for wholeness. But much of the time, maybe it's implicit. The world needs to see it being explicit, that we are a different bunch of people. We have something special something different about us. God wants us to be his alternative society so that people who are struggling know where to look. We're not here just to rejoice in having our sins forgiven and the place assured in glory. That's not what it's all about. That's part of the blessing. But the purpose is far greater than that. We're here to be part of God's wholeness, holiness project. We're here to become what we are, a holy nation, as well as a chosen people and a royal priesthood. And the more we cooperate with that spirit of God, that holy person living inside us, the more we will resemble that alternative society that God is looking for. God wants something so special in amongst all the darkness and the sin and the depravity that there is in the world. And we recognize that, don't we? To be a holy nation is to be like the beacon set on the hill that shines out with the love, 
the goodness, the compassion of Jesus. We are to be light in the world. We are to be salt in society, distinct, separate, whole, and holy. So you say, well, what are the indicators of a, a holy people, a holy church? And we've read from Ephesians 4, or I've referred to it. If you read on in Ephesians 5 and 6, I do encourage you to do that. You'll see a whole list of ways in which Paul encourages the Christians in Ephesus and via them, us, to live out this holy life, this life of wholeness as a company of God's people. It's individual and it's corporate. And I'm just going to pick out three verses. That they're all three in Ephesians 5, actually. But if you read through Ephesians 5 and 6, you'll see so much there. And you'll be able to say, well, yes, thank you, God, I'm doing that. And this is part of my life already. But um, chapter 5, verse 4, he mentions thanksgiving instead of foolishness, foolish talk or coarse joking. And I reckon that's as relevant today as it was then. If you listen to people's conversations these days, you'll hear all kinds of garbage, including very often criticism or moaning or both. Yes? You recognize that? You want to try throwing in a bit of thanksgiving sometimes and see how the atmosphere changes, see how the conversation changes. Yes, you've got this problem, but... What have you got to be thankful for? Oh, well, I suppose, yeah, and on you go. Uh, chapter 5, verse 21, here's one that makes us stand out if we obey it. Submit to one another. That goes right against the grain of the culture of the 21st century in this country. We are told, be yourself. Your views, your opinions, your standards are for you. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise or try and criticize you or suggest you should do something differently. Uh, assert yourself. Self-promotion seems to be the thing these days. Whereas God says here, through the apostle, submit to one another. And for us, it's not just submit to the elders, it's submit to one another. And you may look at me and think, well, David, you've been around the block a few times. Um, are you going to submit, say, to an Edge Hill student? Yes, I am, if the Edge Hill student is speaking the word of God into my life. I need to hear it. I need to respond to it. There may be an age gap. What does that matter? Not at all. We have some excellent students in our church. We are well blessed to have you amongst us and I'm willing to submit to any single one of you if you bring the word of God to my life and I recognize it to be such and then five, chapter 5 verse 18 this is the biggie this is the heart of it all Paul writes be filled with the spirit we've heard that and we've read it so many times haven't we be filled with the spirit how do you know when a glass of a glass of water is full when it overflows. You don't know it's full until it starts dribbling over the edge. And we need to be filled and filled and filled to overflowing. And really this is a big difference between 
the holy nation, the people of God, and the rest of society. Because we have resources available to us which people without God do not have. I'll give you an example. What happens in this country when a tragedy occurs? Somebody's murdered or there's a dreadful fire and people die. Um, people turn up in droves with bunches of flowers, cuddly toys, and then they organize a vigil. That's very often the way, isn't it? I'm not putting those down. That's how people respond, and I respect their right to do that. But to me, it's an empty gesture. It's not really doing anything to help the people whose lives have been so badly hurt. It's expressing sympathy, but it's not bringing compassion. Compassion says, I've got resources that can help you. I'm in touch with a God, and we pray to a God who can make a difference. He can change your situation. He wants to bring healing. He wants to bring peace. He wants to bring gratitude and even joy into the darkest of circumstances. The world hasn't got that. We, as the people of God, have those resources available to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who is holy is alive in you and in me, and he is raring to go. And the only barrier to him being fully operation in the world around us is our lack of readiness or maybe willingness to be used for kingdom purposes. And I'm speaking to myself as much as to anybody else. About a month ago, I took my car to the car wash along Scaresby New Road, uh, the, the SO garage, you know, by the Tesco roundabout. And while I was there, I thought I'd better check my tires. So I went to the machine and did the first three tires fine. I got to the fourth one. I was looking at the little glass where the number 32 should be appearing and it wasn't appearing at all. I thought it was there a minute ago. What's happening? Check the connection. And suddenly when I looked down, the tire was completely flat. It was resting on the, the hub rather than on the tire. It had been deflating the tire rather than inflating it. I don't know how, but anyway. If I told you all that happened in the next two and a half hours, <laughs> you would lose the will to live. The people who came across my path and the suggestions that were made, etc., etc. Suffice to say, after two and a half hours, it was literally that long, uh, we located a man with a portable pump and he fixed the tire in about three minutes flat. Well, not flat. Inflated. <laughs> and later on, I said, God, that was so frustrating. What, what can I learn from that grotty experience? And he said two things. Number one, don't let your membership of the RAC expire. <laughs> that was part of the problem. Number two, just as your car can't make progress unless all the tires are inflated, so my church, my people, will not advance unless they are filled with the Holy Spirit. It came as clear as that, folks. And that's why I pass it on to you. I was on the bus the other day, 
it came to a bus stop and bus shelters these days are advertising hoardings and just a few feet away from where I was sitting, it was six feet high, uh, a can of a well-known brand of cola and the three words across it were thirsty for more. Thirsty for more. And folks, I want to ask you the question very directly this morning. Are you thirsty for more of God? Are you thirsty for more evidence of the Holy Spirit not just occupying your life, but active in your life? We together, active in our corporate lives. Philippians 2.13 in the New Living Translation, God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. The desire, the thirst, the hunger, the yearning, but also the power to do what pleases him. That's a good starting point. If you're thirsty, if you're really longing for more of God, then he can do business with you. And in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, this is right at the start of Peter's letter. It's the first statement of the letter after the greetings. First thing he says, so it's really front and central in his thinking. He says this, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. Everything we need. You don't need to go looking anywhere else. If you're thirsty for God, just get before God and say, oh God, use me. Fill me. Fill me to overflowing. And the resources which he has invested in you, in his Holy Spirit, will begin to operate. It's there in that Ephesian list. We focused on it. Be filled with the Spirit. And those of us, many of us know the verb there is a continuous present. It means go on being filled. Yes, it was once when I was baptized in the Spirit and I began to move in the gifts of the Spirit, speaking tongues, etc. But ever since, I need to be constantly going on being filled. Same is true for you, so that we overflow. How do we do that? Well, we take time. Maybe we make time to switch off the social media and switch on to the presence of God in our lives. That means growing our relationship with the Holy Spirit in worship, in prayer, in tongues, reading the Bible, in silence, in the presence of the holy person who is living inside you, waiting on God and saying, God, will you speak? God, will you move? God, will you use me? God, will you use us? Holy Spirit, will you demonstrate your presence over and over and over again in this group of people, through this group of people, into a needy world? That's what it's about, being a holy nation, being the people of God. And if the angelic inspectorate is going around looking to find churches where the Holy Spirit is fully operational, as he comes to this church, is there enough evidence to secure a conviction? That's what I ask myself. I'm part of a holy nation. 
you are part of a holy nation. God says, be holy, because I'm holy. I want to be the complete man of God. I'm not there yet. Paul the Apostle was very honest. He said, I haven't got there yet. But I'm moving on. I'm advancing. I'm looking to God. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit. I'm believing the Word of God. I'm expecting that God is going to do things, is going to move, is going to use, is going to speak. And if we are thirsty for more, all of us, and we respond accordingly, then there is no limit to what God can do through this committed bunch of people. We're going to sing. Musicians, if you'd come up again, please. It's a, a song, I haven't sung it for a while, although we sang it, it came up in uh, worship team a couple of weeks ago, and I said, oh yes, that's just what we need for a week on Sunday. It says, this is the air I breathe, your holy presence living in me. And then it goes on a bit further. It says, I'm desperate for you, and I'm lost without you. I would encourage you not to sing this unless you mean it. Feel free not to sing it. But if you are thirsty for more, if you want the Holy Spirit inside you to, to be more fully operational, more fully released, then maybe you'll stand with me and you'll sing with me this is the air I breathe, your holy presence living in me, and I'm desperate for you, and I'm lost without you. Thank you.